Wow, great to be on the ship with you guys. This is going to be a fun ride. Um, 48 hours ago, I was in Portugal with 120 church planters, and so if I face plant in my plate, just scrape the food off and enjoy it, whatever it worked for you. Um, really um, uh, excited to be with you guys. Um, this is a privilege, so thank you, Neil, for the chance to come and join you in this um, spiritual experience. And uh, so we're going to spend time together tonight, and then tomorrow's the off day. I'm kind of curious if anybody is going to go walking in the tall trees like the sequoias. Anybody going out there or walking the sequoias? So a couple of you guys are? Let me know, because at breakfast, I, if I can invite myself, I'd like to invite, you know, come along. And I just want to walk through the big trees. I mean, this is pretty incredible. So anybody's going to go for a tree walk, let me know. I might want to jump in and invite myself along. So it should be fun. Uh, then on uh, Thursday and Friday, we're going to get more into the meat of the Bible study that I brought for you guys. But um, as we start this um, road together, um, coming off of the third, I just wanted to start tonight with a bit of story, if I could. Because over these last years, since I was a university student, there's been some pretty... Um, tectonic shifting going on in my spiritual life. And I'd love just to kind of bring you along on that journey a bit. And I wonder if you would find yourself in some of the stages that I've been through of spiritual growth and development, and specifically in the area of growing toward maturity in Christ. And um, so I just want to invite you to um, come along as I recap some decades of walking with Jesus and with Jesus's people and, and the things that I got wrong and a few of the things I got right and, and just see if it connects with some of your story too. So I grew up in Dallas uh, in the Republic of Texas. Woo-hoo! And uh, that was a, a great experience uh, growing up in church around religious people, around religious things. Had a wonderful time growing up in the church building. Uh, we played hide-and-seek all over the church. We, we had this tile floor and these pews everywhere. And during the Sunday night church service, the goal was to slide down under the pew without your parents seeing, right? And then grab the bottom of the pews and slide around and kind of navigate underneath the, and then pop up somewhere else. And you pop up and look around and there's your buddy over there and you're like, three rows back, all right, slide back down and kind of push your way over. I mean, we just had a great time growing up in church. But I, I'll tell you this, for me, that was the chapter that I would call cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. I was a part of it because there was a sense of expectation. It's what people were doing. Uh, it's where my friends were hanging out. It's where I had social uh, involvement. Um, and yeah, Jesus was a part of that. But not really at the center of it. So I'm just kind of wondering if anybody else has been through a chapter of your life where being involved in church was a little bit more of just a culture thing than a real personal commitment. Just raise your hand if you've been a part of a culture. Okay, so quite a few of you have. Now, I know that there's people here in the room that didn't grow up anywhere around church, and I admire that. I have a, a deep appreciation for uh, growing up, being introduced to it later. Well, then I went off to university. I went to university at Baylor. And that was, you know, thinking that there would be, you know, it would be like church, 
every day. And it was great, a good experience until catastrophe hits in the form of a dating relationship, total wipeout, I mean, complete, utter emotional destruction. And I was in a bawling heap on the floor, and it was horrible. I mean, I, I literally couldn't function for at least 30 minutes. And then it, you know, <laughs> no, it went on for a long time. In fact, there was a point of this kind of pain where, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I, I commit this to you as I'm with you. I'm not gonna hide things about my spiritual journey. It was ugly. It was at a, I was at a point of spiritual and emotional pain that this is the thought that went through my head. If Jesus doesn't matter now, forget it. If Jesus doesn't matter in this kind of pain, it's worthless. So I wonder if any of you have been at a crossroads where the whole cultural thing hit a brick wall and you were faced with a decision to either embrace it as real or admit that it was just a culture thing. That's where I was. Praise God, several students and friends came around me, invested in my life, and said, let's walk with you through this. That opened the door for a new spiritual movement. So I had the cultural Christianity. It moved me into personal Christianity. So a guy had showed up at Baylor's campus at that time named Louis Giglio, and he started a Bible study with 40 of us in an apartment clubhouse. And that's the first time I heard anybody talk about a personal, actual personal experience of Christ. So as a sophomore at university, I was introduced to the personal side of walking with Jesus and was a part of that Bible study as it grew and it became the passion movement later on. But right there in that apartment clubhouse with 40 of us, we began to ask, so what? What's the, uh, what's the outcome of walking with Jesus? Um, that's when those verses started to, you know, become a little more real to me, like, you know, hearing John 3.16, and yeah, so God so loved the world, but, you know, it's okay to kind of take that word world out and put your name in there. You know, so God so loved me that he gave his one and only son, and if I was the only person on the planet, Jesus would have still come to earth, lived a sinless life, sacrificed his life on the cross, raised from the dead and saved me and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in me. If I was the only person on the planet, he would have loved me that much. I heard verses like, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, great verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Who doesn't like that verse? I mean, come on. I mean, you ever wonder, God, where's this whole thing going with my life? And then somebody comes along and says, but he knows the plans he has for you. It's to prosper you. All right, prosper. That sounds like a really great deal. Prosper me away, oh Lord. Let's get on with the prospering thing. Not to harm me. So, you know, my my sinfulness, he's not going to squish me like a bug. I'm not going to get obliterated. Not to harm me, but to give me a future and a hope. How personal. That's an incredibly personal verse. Then I began to lead that campus Bible study. And I began to wonder, is this all there was to the Christian life thing? Is 
pursuing intimacy with Christ, which, by the way, you can gauge by a meaningful and consistent quiet time, right? So you got a metric for that. You know, do you have a meaningful and consistent devotional time? Because that's probably a good measure of intimacy with Christ. And, and I just started to wonder, is this, is this all there is? Then I got invited with some other college ministers doing you know, campus ministry to go to China. Anybody here from China? Got a few folks from China? Or anybody been to China? A few been to China? Okay, I went to a part of China that's not really Chinese. I went to Northwest China, to Xinjiang province, to what the local people call Yurumchi, but the, the Chinese people call Wulumuchi, a tremendous little corner in Northwest China. But it's not really mostly Chinese people, it's mostly a different people group called the Uyghurs, U-I, not Weebles, Uyghurs, U-I-G-H-U-R-S. And when I went there, my ministry guide was walking me around. I said, how many Uyghurs live here in Northwest China? He's like, well, there's 8 million here, and there's about that many on the Kazakh side, on the Kazakhstan, but we're just working on the Chinese side. And I said, all right, well, how many Christians are there among the Uyghurs? He thought, and he said, well, four. <laughs> four? Really? Out of eight million people here? I said, how many missionaries are here to share the love of Christ? He's like, well, do you mean like Baptist or all of them? I said, give me the big number. I want the whole, the whole collection Every missionary, every country, every denomination, every agency. And he was thinking, he's like, well, eight? Like eight? For eight million people, there's eight, eight folks and four local believers. All right, so that disturbed me. I got on the airplane to fly back to Texas, and I asked God a question. Do you not care about the Uyghurs? Why are there not more people here to share your love unless you just don't really care about this group? Well, that was an unanswerable question. I don't know if you've asked any unanswerable questions to God, but I have, and that was one of them. Do you not care about the Uyghurs? So I get back to this campus Bible study. By this time, there's about 1,500 students that are gathering every Monday night to be a part of a Bible study. And that night I wasn't teaching, I was sitting at the back because I was jet lagged from China. And a guy was sitting at the, or talking at the front and I started looking around at the crowd. And I know so many of those students and the things that they were worried about, about choosing the right major, about pursuing the right career. Do I have a date to the football game Friday night? Do, do, am I going to get along with my roommate or should I choose new roommates for next year? That, that is when God answered the question. And he said, it's not that I don't care about the Uyghurs. It's that you have yet to care about them. So I went to a spiritual mentor of mine and I said, I don't know what's going on in my heart, but this whole thing has really disturbed me. And he said, well, I think the problem is your hermeneutic. And I said, no, I don't even have one. He's like, yeah, you do. You Everybody's got a hermeneutic. I said, no, I had two baby teeth removed when I was like 10, and I had my hermeneutic removed at the same time. It just took the whole thing out. 
He's like, no, they didn't take your hermeneutic out. I said, I don't even know what that is. I'm sure I had it removed, hermeneuticectomy. No, you didn't have one. He said, what it is is the filter through which you understand Scripture. And right now, your lens that you're viewing Scripture is that it's all about you and Jesus. That's the lens you're looking at, that everything is pointing toward you walking with Jesus in this wonderful, intimate love relationship. And I said, what do I do? He said, go back and reread. Reread and ask the question, is there something you're missing? So I went back to Jeremiah 29. I found out that it's not really about God's plan to prosper me. It was at a time when God's people were in Babylonian exile. They'd been yanked out of the promised land and made subject to the rule of the Babylonian empire. And God sends a message to them. And he says this through the prophet. He says, I brought you into exile. Plant your lives there. Build houses. Plant farms. Marry. Give your children in marriage. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city. Because as it prospers, so you will prosper. I will bring you out of exile in the future. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. All right, now when I read at that time, all of a sudden it wasn't about me. It was about God's people who could be nothing but angry at the Babylonians completely ticked off at them, resistant to them, separate from them, isolated, having nothing to do with them, and God says, no, plant your lives among them. Build your life there. Increase in number, do not decrease, and pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. That's the first time I'd ever heard Jeremiah 29, 11 put in the context of the story that God was seeking through his people to reveal himself to the Babylonians. Then I was talking to my wife about this, and she was like, well, you know that whole John 3.16 verse? I said, yeah, for God so loved me. And she said, no. She said, you've been telling people that if they were the only person on the planet and you've been saying, if, if, if I was the only person on the planet, this is what only a wife can say to you, right? She goes, I got news for you, buddy. You're not the only person on the planet. I'm like, what? You can't say stuff like that to me. We're married. She's like, yeah, I can, because we're married. You're not the only person on the planet. The word isn't Dudley in Scripture. The word is world. They're different words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Uh, that's actually four times in the same two verses that the word world is used. It wasn't really about me. 
forever. It's about something God was doing among the world. So I just kept reading, and passage after passage and story after story in Scripture began to form in me this new lens that I now carry in life today. And here's as simple as I can make it, that God has chosen to pour into my life, to divest to me his divine blessing, his love, his forgiveness, his approval, his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, that he has offered freely to me that I may know and enjoy him, but that's not all. That I may know and enjoy him so that I may take what he's divested to me and I can invest it in others. I've, I've just distilled it down to something as simple as this, and you'll, you'll get to know this about me. It's got to be simple, and it's got to be practical, or I don't get it. I didn't go to schools like you guys would go to. I'm like, uh, make it simple for me, all right? Here's how simple it is. I want to know and experience the magnificent love of Christ and freely offer it to others. I want to know and experience the magnificent love of Christ. That is personal, right? And freely offer it to others. I call this the third spiritual movement in my life from cultural Christianity to a personal Christianity to what I now deem as a purposeful Christianity. It's following Jesus with a reason bigger than myself with a goal that has little to do with me. This is when I stopped asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Maybe some of you have asked that question, maybe like recently. What is God's will for my life? I ask that question all the time. This is when the question changed. It got cut in half. And then the question became, what is God's will, period? What is God's will, and how in the world can my little life have any part in that? A much bigger story, a much bigger purpose, a much grander narrative than anything I could ever be a part of. What is God's will? God, what is your purpose on this earth? And can I play? Can I be even a small part of that in any way? Purposeful. Christianity. Let me give you a practical example of this. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus offers some instruction to his close followers, his disciples. He's preparing for the end game. And it comes down to this conversation where he's beginning to cast vision for what's going to happen next. And in it, he says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Now, I just want to stop there because that doesn't sound like a real new command. If you know anything about stuff that Jesus had said, in fact, there was one point where the religious leaders challenged Jesus about the rule book. And they said, out of all the rules, 
what's the most important for us to keep? And by that point, they had volumes of rules, not like a few, but like volumes of rules. And Jesus' answer was, you know this, the first answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he said there's a second one that's like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? So Jesus has already declared there's just out of all the rules, there's two, and they're both starting with the word love. Love God, love others. Love God, love others with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love others like you love yourself. So when Jesus is quoting these two, he's actually quoting back from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, old ancient rule book brought into his context to say, these are the two big ones, and they're based in the word love. The second one, though, think about this. The second one was love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the standard is this. In the same way that you look out for your needs, also look out for her needs. In the same way you are attentive to your interests, look out for his interests. In the same way you provide shelter for yourself, provide shelter for others. In the same way you put food on your table, put food on their table. In every way that you take care of yourself, as you love yourself, love others. So Jesus then is calling back to these two ancient rules, but then he says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, which sounds a whole lot like rule number two. But he goes further. He says, a new rule I give to you, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Do you hear what happened and what changed? What shifted from the second great command? The second great command was love your neighbor as yourself. A new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Did you hear the shift? As I have loved you so you love one another. I just want to pause for a second and get a little, you know, audience participation. So this is, you You need to, we're going to forget the whole height thing. I'm with you. Let's talk about this. I don't want to know what you have thought about the love of Christ. I don't even want to know what you have academically learned about the love of Christ. I'd like to hear some words that you feel like describe your experience of the love of Christ. What has the love of Christ felt like in your life? What word would you put on that? Comforting. Joy. I'm going to stand back so everybody can hear. Joy. Overwhelming. Wow. Humbling. His love humbles us. Yeah. Magnificent. Thank you. I like that word. The whole magnificent love of Christ. Yeah, that's good. What else? Sorry? Crippling. Crippling. How so? Uh, so much that it makes me Okay. Wow. 
Yeah, there's a brokenness to our experience that he steps into with his love. How else would you describe his love? What has his love felt like to you? Grace, peaceful, huh? relieving, good. Awe-filled, okay. You're in awe of what's happened. It's mercy. So, you know, this whole grace and mercy thing, the grace is the blessings of God that come to us that we don't deserve. His mercy is the removal of punishment that we do deserve. They go hand in hand together. So his love is merciful in that the punishment we deserve for our sin, he has removed what we rightfully deserve. And it's gracious because he has given to us everything that we don't deserve. How else has his love felt to you? Sorry, fatherly? Great. Hopeful, okay. Indescribable. Yeah. Wow, I don't even know what that means. It, so there's a fatigue in there that it, he doesn't have fatigue. So, all right, without fatigue, that's awesome. Or whatever she said that has like, it doesn't have fatigue, which is good. There's like an N in there somewhere. That's great. Are you like a liter, literature major? Because my daughter, Molly, would have come up with that. That's a, really? Awesome. I love that. Sacrificial. His love is, is initiating. It's unending. Okay, we got a lot of words, right, on the love of Christ. Hear it again. You ready for it? Listen to this again. Think of all those words you just heard. A new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you without fatigue, mercifully, graciously, magnificently, with kindness, with sacrifice. Do you hear this? As Jesus demonstrated his love for you, you now demonstrate that love for others. That which has been divested to you, you receive it, embrace it, and then give it away. In our mission, our church planning mission, we have people who got rejected by other mission agencies for a number of reasons. Most of the reasons are because of some part of their story that reflected huge brokenness, like horrible life choices, horrible lifestyle choices. And other missions would say, we can't take a risk on you. I'm, I am blessed to be a part of a mission that says, tell us your story. Because here's what we found. The woman who has been met head on in the midst of her own self-destruction, she's been met by the restorative grace of Christ is the woman who knows how to give that grace away. The man who destroyed himself, himself, the man who completely blew it horribly, but then received this restorative grace of Christ is the man I want to go give it away. It, it, it really kind of comes down to this, and we'll finish here tonight. God is investing himself in you. And I would just say divesting. If you receive it, it's divested to you from him. It comes into you from him. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. He's offering it freely to you. His love, his grace, his kindness, 
his mercy, his forgiveness, all the things he sacrificed for you to have, divested to you by faith so that you can turn around and invest it in others. I'll finish with the story of how this works. Mike and Carol lived in Maryland and made a real mess of their lives. They were married, had kids, but Christ was divesting his spirit into them. And they said, we feel like we should pack up and go. They moved to Glasgow, Scotland. Now, Scotland has a rich Christian history. It's the birthplace of Presbyterianism, for crying out loud. Did you know this year, Scotland went below the threshold of Christian presence to be considered an unreached people group, below 2% followers of Jesus. In Scotland, Mike and Carol moved there and began to plant their lives like Jeremiah 29, living there, having their children, raising a family, embedding their lives there. And what they found was this massive immigrant population coming from Iran, Iranians moving in in the droves into Glasgow, Scotland. So they start working among the council flat housing, which is where the Glasgow government will put refugee seekers or asylum seekers. It's pretty bad conditions. And that's where they met a young man named Saeed. Saeed was an Iranian immigrant come to Glasgow because he was put in jail by Ahmadinejad, the former uh, president of Iran. He snuck out of Iran in the back of a Nutella truck, right? The chocolate Nutella truck with four other men. That's all they ate for two weeks. Can you imagine? It's like Nutella. I'm like, Saeed, do you even like Nutella? Oh, I love Nutella. Oh, <laughs> Nutella saved my life. You know, like, wow, okay, good. Man, I wouldn't touch this stuff. He's like, oh. Across Europe in a Nutella truck, gets to Glasgow and gets put in this council flat housing. Mike meets him there and says, Saeed, you've got such education, you've got such promise, you've got great work ethic. We want you to come stay with us, right? So Mike and Carol, by all that God divested into them, opened their home to Saeed. Come stay with us. So Saeed comes, stays for the weekend. He's got his little backpack, and he stays for the weekend. On Sunday, he starts packing things back up. And Mike says, no, you didn't understand me. We want you to live with our family. Move in with us. Can you think of some of the words you just said about the magnificent love of Christ? Sacrificial, other-oriented, unending, unselfish. That's what Mike and Carol did for Saeed. Saeed lived in their home for over a year. Six months into living there, he said yes to following Jesus. When I met Saeed, I said, tell me your spiritual journey. He said, it took six months of watching them every day to say, I want that. They didn't meet weekly. They didn't get together and do kind of a discovery Bible study. It was much more invasive than that. Come live in our home. That's where Saeed saw what it meant to follow Jesus. What God had divested into Mike and Carol, Mike and Carol invested into Saeed. Now, again, I'm going to be honest with you. 
I, I lead the mission that Mike and Carol are employed by. And I can confess to you today, I don't have that courage. I don't have the courage to say to an Iranian immigrant, come live in my home with my two teenage daughters. Mike and Carol had two teenage daughters and a teenage son. But they knew that Saeed would not come to faith unless he saw it in action. That is humbling to me, to be around such courageous Christians like Mike and Carol. So what's happened since then? Saeed not only came to faith in Christ, they began to gather more Iranian immigrants to come in every Friday night. They start at 4 o'clock making dinner. By 6 o'clock, they're eating together and share a huge meal. 40 to 60 Iranian immigrants every Friday night. And then they hang around and they do really horrible Iranian worship music. I mean, it's not that their music is bad. They're just bad musicians. And they don't care. They're like, so what? Woohoo! Beat the drums. They're just having a great time worshiping. Then they start praying. The praying goes on until 11.14. Because at 11.14, they got to bolt out the door to get to the last bus before they can't get home. They will pray for up to three hours together on a Friday night. That is now a brand new church called Upper Room Church. And guess who's leading it? Saeed is now moving into a pastoral role. And what's happened now? What Mike and Carol invested into his life, he is now investing into others' lives. He not only received the great love of Christ, He's now freely giving it away to the, his own Iranian community. I just want to paint a picture for you of where we're going. And that's this wonderful symbiotic relationship between experiencing and knowing the magnificent love of Christ for you and the mandate and the opportunity for you to turn around and freely give it away to others. That's where we're going with our Bible study. And I want to show you some stories that you've probably heard in Scripture, but maybe through a different hermeneutic, if you didn't have yours removed already. I'd like to show you a different hermeneutic that says, what happens if you look at the story from the big arc narrative of what God's doing in the world? That's where I've been, and it's changed my life. It's changing it daily to be around people that are that courageous to give away freely what Christ has freely given to them. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for the um, privilege of walking a few steps with this group of men and women. I pray, Lord, that as we share time together, you would reveal yourself to us through your story and through our stories that we would be inspired together and that we would be called together to take that which you've given us and to give it away to the people around us. Lord, I'm convinced around this room that most of us came to faith in you because of the, the presence of a friend who knows you. We came to faith in you because of the presence of a friend who knows you. Let us be that friend for others. Lord, let us be that friend for others. Thank you now and we worship you in our hearts, with our minds, with our bodies. So we seek you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.